0: So... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, wait. This is not uncomfortable, but it's very weird. This is the thing? This is the one. Absolutely. And now it almost couldn't have happened in a better way. Where did you want to be? So it was just like, ah! Am I funny? <laughs> now if I go over here, <laughs> who is I still? Play. Yeah, way better. I never thought about that. Yeah, a I don't see it five years from now that you're not my most famous friend. You really have to commit to something. Good to have someone pushing you. That, cool? that was really cool. Yeah, it might have cool. This is On the Cusp. Hello, I'm Ben Green, and welcome to On the Cusp. This week, my guest is Alex Whittington. He's an actor you may have seen in TV shows like AMC's Turn, movies like Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, and hosting new satire shows like The State of Us. A quick message to On The Cusp listeners. If you're a fan of the show, I would really appreciate it if you'd consider subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or on SoundCloud. And if anyone rates the show on iTunes, that would legitimately make my day. This episode is sponsored by Thai Pepper at 6219 Franklin Avenue in Los Angeles. Now offering fried tofu in a sweet sauce just like mom used to make. Thai Pepper. It's the only Thai restaurant within two minutes of the 101 coffee shop. It's Thai Pepper. So I met Alex Whittington in my freshman year at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, But he was actually still a high school student when we met. He was coming to visit his girlfriend at the time, a girl named Jackie Bradley, uh, who at the time I actually had a big crush on. Um, So the first time I met Alex, I felt like a little bit antagonistically towards him. Uh, You'll get to actually hear us talk about all this in the episode. But even though that's how our friendship began, um, our friendship grew into this big very cool thing Um, and out in California uh, living out here together we've actually had like a pretty awesome working relationship and have made a lot of projects together. A number of seasons of a web series named The State of Us, a pilot called All of the Above, Uh, he did an amazing job being in a musical I wrote called The Bracelet and we're always thinking of new projects to work on together. Alex is the kind of guy who will do absolutely anything for his friends. Like, do more than give you the shirt off his back. He is infinitely loyal. Um, and one of my favorite memories of Alex is when, last year, him and me and our friends Reed Kost and Robert Stevens went to Zion National Park to go camping. And Alex put a lot of time and energy into, like, organizing this trip and making it the best trip possible because he really knows how to do hiking. Um, And when we got there, the trip ended up kind of going off course when we had originally planned on doing this area called the Narrows, but there was a flooding hazard. So we rerouted and ended up doing uh, this trail called Angel's Landing, which was also amazing. Um, the only problem with that was that it changed like what our plans were for where we were going to end up sleeping for the night, and we kind of had to improvise. And so around five o'clock, Alex led us out on this course that was supposed to bring us to an area that we could sleep. But uh, by seven o'clock, we hadn't gotten there yet, and it was beginning to become dark. Um, and the situation actually quickly became really terrifying. It was very sweet to me in that moment to see how much responsibility Alex felt like he needed to take for our lives. He felt like he was sort of the leader on this trip, and that was sort of true. But it was somewhat adorable to see how much panic was on his face um, and his worries that he had somehow led three of his best friends into a situation where we would all die. Um, And I very affectionately remember him running uh, in the dark, Uh, like about a quarter mile ahead of us to just be like sizing up the area in front of us to make sure it was safe for his friends. I don't think he really felt like he had the situation under control anymore, but in actuality in a group like that, Alex is who I would want to have as our leader. He's a guy who I know is truly on the lookout for his friends. Um, The other thought that kept occurring to me that night was that uh, because we knew there were, like, bobcats in the area um, and different things that could maybe hurt us because you don't want to be out in the dark um, on a trail, was how much I would actually be kind of okay dying in that moment with those three guys around me. There are ways of dying that feel terrifying to me, like getting in a car accident, but dying out on a hiking trail in Zion National Park uh, with like a billion stars in the sky surrounded by friends feels to me like it would actually be like a really nice way to go. Um, One note before I start this interview is that Alex texted me after we did this interview and just wanted to say that he felt like he hadn't mentioned enough uh, how much his parents had done for him throughout his whole life. Um, That they've been endlessly supportive and have made his life the good life that it is. So shout out to Alex's parents. So now let's jump in to my interview with my dear friend and hike leader, Alex Whittington. Do you remember the first time we met? I think
1: the, I think I do. I think the first time I met you was with Russell Johnson and Jackie Bradley.
0: Yeah. At Lenore, like top of Lenore. We had a lunch together.
1: Yes. I remember this very well, actually.
0: And what do you remember about me? And I'll tell you what I remember about you.
1: I remember that you, my initial impression of you was kind of combined with my initial impression of Russell Johnson. I was in high school. So I thought both of you guys were like college guys. Which like is, cool God. college guys? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. Of course, I thought you guys were were cool college guys, but you were my you were my girlfriend's friends, so that I was not. I didn't really have any judgments. I was like, these guys are really down to earth, nice, funny, interested, engaging people. That was my first impression of you. I was like, you know, you were an appendage of this other person who were.
0: Yeah. I remember you, I felt like you were the cockiest person. Did you? I'd ever. Yeah, you were super cocky coming in. uh, And like you you, you were like a, like you said in high school, but you like seemed kind of like you owned like the college already. Do you think Uh, that that's... You were very alpha.
1: Oh, I gotcha. You You don't think that that was colored by the fact that you were in love with my girlfriend at the time? (laughs) (laughs) Like this is like a narrative I was weaving for myself? Like possibly, just to consider it. Uh cuz I'm also willing to that, consider that I was cocky.
0: Well, <laughs> it, that might have 100% colored everything. Uh I feel like uh my, this is the second time I met you was when I was going with Jackie, like I came with her to Charlotte and mm-hmm. I hung out with you and a couple of your friends and I got that like that alpha impression from you again. <laughs> uh, and I remember you just like like Kicking your friends a lot, <laughs> like I remember, like you would like, like you were like a guy who would like punch people really hard, and you just like felt like so vital. But uh, now that you said it, I think it probably was a hundred percent. Like well, I was, I was making you my Roy in the office. Like I was making my like in my own like narrative in my head. Like I was Jim, and like Jackie was Pam, and you were like. Roy,
1: I, I would have a better defense if you didn't also have the details of me kicking and punching my friends. <laughs> 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 then I might have a better defense, but I think it's safe to say that at the end of high school, I was I probably had my head pretty far up my ass. Yeah,
0: I just think That's I fair. I like thinking of you that way because I know how much you're not that at this point. I've had I've now had a eight-year friendship with you, in which I've seen a lot of different sides of you. Uh, And, like, I would not anymore ever describe you as, like, an alpha jerk weirdo.
1: I know. I'm more of a Uh, (laughs) diminutive Nancy boy. That's how I would self-describe. Is that what you would say? Yeah, that's what I would say.
0: I would say you're a very sweet, sensitive, artistic uh, bird. Thank
1: you. And is that a comment on my nose, or is that just...
0: No, you're like... No, no, not at all. You, I think you've got a nice nose. Thank you. I feel like, if anything, it's a comment on that you're, you're just... I wouldn't be surprised if you started flying at any moment. Mm-hmm. Metaphorically.
1: That's very sweet, Ben. Thank you. I'd be very surprised. Can I talk about the second meeting of you? Yeah, sure. I, the fondness just grew. What had already been a, a fond initial meeting continued.
0: Even though I was... Really, I didn't, uh, I didn't feelings
1: I didn't, for your girlfriend. I wouldn't actually have confirmed that fact for, I think, at least another year at this point. Okay, so it was a this day. was good. And yeah, you're <laughs> just a fun guy.
0: Okay, we'll come back to all of this. Awesome, um, and we we can go as in depth as you want to or not. Cool. um You were born in Charlotte.
1: I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina.
0: A little area of Charlotte, like a.
1: I was born at the Presbyterian Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I lived at the house on Westfield Road until second grade when I moved to 1111 Linganore Place. Which is not that far? Which is not that far away. About a five-minute drive, ten-minute drive.
0: Your parents were Catherine
1: Whittington? Catherine Whittington, formerly Catherine Oliver Shields, um, and David Whittington.
0: And what did they do? And what were they like?
1: My mom is a lifelong teacher i would say um both in and outside of the classroom she has had a long career in primary education so she's done um elementary school and then in more recent years she's been an editor for uh elementary school curriculum she's also done some writing for that curriculum she's worked for a few different companies in charlottesville virginia where she lives now um towards that end. And she's also had some forays into writing. Um, she's a fantastic cook. She's, she's like really a fantastic chef, cook, homemaker. Uh, she's got an eye for design. She's a voracious reader. She's a lot of things, but she, as far as like income, she's been a school teacher.
0: But, but she's kind of a jack of all trades.
1: She's a jack of all trades. Yeah. And, and my dad is a banker. Um, is the short term, but he is, he calls himself a recovering attorney because he was a barrister, which is an English lawyer in England following his education, um, at Oxford. And then he did a lot of different things for the next decade before landing on, uh, working for Nations Bank, now Bank of America. And then he left that job and works as a, um, he works in mergers and acquisitions. So he represents the buyers and sellers of companies. How would your parents meet? My parents met in Amsterdam on a blind date. They were both living there. My mom was teaching and my dad was working for Dutch Bank.
0: And it went really well.
1: It went okay, actually. My mom was really sick. And my dad... um, I'm not sure if this was their first date or not, but they were set up from some mutual friends. And my dad eventually... Even though I think my mom was like struggling with anemia or something, she had some pretty serious illness at the time and my dad like came to her flat where she was staying with friends being nursed by her friends on a night that they went out and like jailbroke her like came to the like set it up came took her out they went out like had some dinner and then he just pursued her
0: that's really sweet yeah it is really sweet your dad even liked your mom sick
1: my dad has always loved my mom in his own words
0: (laughs) Uh, and when you were born, you already had an older brother, Thomas. I did. (laughs) Um, what was he like as an older brother? Like when you were kids,
1: Tom, Thomas and I are really close and we have actually always been really close. But when we were little kids, he did beat the living shit out of me on a pretty regular basis after I kind of was old enough to be beaten up. I think initially I don't have a lot of memories of this, but my parents always say he was a good big brother. Um, meaning that he was like really excited when I first was being born. And, but then after I was born, he became really territorial and he literally like took a piss in the corner of his room for like a week. And then my mom, this is a true story. My brother peed in the corner of his room to like mark his territory after I was born because he felt threatened. And then my mom was like, what is that? Like, what is that smell? She like caught him doing it. And that was his way of that was his way of saying, get out of my life.
0: <laughs> what a nice brother!
1: But he actually has been, yeah. He's like my other half. He's we're very close. Um,
0: and I should say too, your dad is British. Um, my dad you, is British. I think you may have said that, but like, what what is his accent like? Can you do like a, just a quick impression of him so people get a taste?
1: Sure. I don't want to peek out your microphone, but the. One that my brother and I like to do, just as a soundbite, is one day our dog Charlie did his business in my dad's upstairs study on Langanar, and he came home uh, from Nations Bank, and we heard him walk up the stairs, open the door, and then shout down from the stairs, Catherine, I don't want to come home from a long day at the office and find that the dog has shat all over the carpet. But he has kind of a standard BBC British, as they call it. Standard pronunciation. A
0: very sophisticated voice.
1: Very sophisticated voice,
0: yes. Uh, What would you say you were like as a kid?
1: Um, I was a pretty animated, rambunctious little kid. I was like... uh, my mom. I can't remember if it was my mom or my grandmother used to say that I was full of beans. That was the (laughs) expression that they used. My grandmother said... He is full of beans. What did that mean? It just meant that I was like... Off. I was... You were all over the place? I was gone. Yeah, I was like exploring the backyard. I was... I was... I think Robert mentioned in his podcast I was in love with stuffed animals. Um, you but, would try to sneak stuffed animals onto the playground. I did like try to... Stuffing sneak. them in your shirt. Exactly. That was one thing that I tried to do. Um, I... Before I ever met Robert Stevens, I was best friends with this guy, John Stewart, um, who still lives in Charlotte. We're still in touch. And we would go, we lived on the same street on Westfield Road. And we would like spray paint Porta johns throw mud on the stucco house of our um, neighbors. This is all before second grade. So I guess I was kind of a problem child, but not because I wanted to hurt anybody, just because I wanted to see what would happen. That's always the main thing is like, I wanted to see what would happen. And so I did a lot of, Exploring to that end.
0: You were like a curious little demon.
1: I was like a curious little demon, yeah.
0: <laughs> Did you also have a sensitive side? I like
1: to think I was like a powerful demon. <laughs> like in the way that Lucifer was powerful. I think Before he fell from grace. N- not just
0: like a sweet little demon?
1: I think I was probably a pretty sadistic little <laughs> demon. You don't think that. Who then climbed, clawed, and scratched. Pilfered and stole... <laughs> To get his way back up the ladder to heaven. (laughs) And I have been sitting high on the hog ever since. I don't think you think these things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Did you have a, uh, a sensitive side as like a kid?
1: Yeah, I was attached to my mom. I mean, I did not want to leave my mom's side. Would you call
0: yourself a mama's boy? I wouldn't
1: call myself a mama's boy because this is when I was a really little kid. As soon as I got older, when I was going to school and stuff, I was pretty independent, I think. But um, I was definitely, I think that, I think I had a sensitive side in that I was, the sensitivity and the curiosity kind of went hand in hand. But I don't think that I really became that empathetic until my teenage years really yeah i think i was just kind of like blazing through the world up until i was about 14 or 15
0: that's interesting yeah i remember too uh another memory from when i came to charlotte uh and was in love with your girlfriend right was that we were in your house and your dad showed me like art that you had made when you were a kid and it was incredible like you just had like a very definite style Um, I, especially, I think I've told you, but like one picture of like a lemur or something really stands out to me where like it was a lemur and like, I think you had like written something like, this is a lemur, uh, kind of like,
1: yeah, I know the painting you're talking about. A surrealist. First of all, thank you. I really appreciate that. These were, my mom paid for us to go to these art classes as young kids, my brother and I, and I loved them. And so. And you got good. And did you. I I would not say, I would not say that I was that good. I mean, there are some serious spatial problems with all of these paintings that are hanging up in the house.
0: There was never a point where the teacher like pulled one of your parents aside and was like, Alex is special. No
1: way. No. No, I've never really had that sort of encouragement um, as a visual artist from in an academic setting. I think I've always been like competent (laughs) and able to do it. And believed in yourself, like, later in life with art. Uh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that painting is actually, it's a painting of, or it's a drawing of a jungle. So it's like a leopard and stuff, and a monkey and a toucan. And then in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a flying squirrel pushing a package, like a square present with a bow. And on the package, it says, please do not pay attention to this part of the picture. That's the one you're talking about. See, that's amazing.
0: (laughs) Or demented. I think, well, but it's just different than, like, what you'd expect from... I haven't seen a kid do that before, so I thought that was really cool. Thanks, man. Um, <laughs> do you feel like you had other... You're saying that nobody really let you know you were special in this way when you were a kid. Did you have other things that you think, like, made you kind of stand
1: out? As a really little kid? As a
0: 1 one through 10
1: one through 10, I think I just remember things being pretty easy and fun. I don't remember a whole lot of encouragement or discouragement one way or the other. I just think that I took for granted all the opportunities that I had. I mean, I was, I got to take the classes that I wanted to take and then, you know, play with my friends when I wasn't in those classes and eat good food that my mom cooked. And yeah, I wouldn't say that I was like in any way a prodigy or like, you know, <laughs> obviously not, because then I wouldn't be working a part-time job in the Apple store at 27 years old. <laughs> but I... Uh, no, I, I had a really good childhood.
0: Um, so what's your first memory of meeting Robert Stevens?
1: My first memory of meeting Robert is... You know, I honestly don't really... It, have a first memory of that i know he told this story about the stuffed animal but i just remember being friends with robert i don't even remember him not liking me there was just life before robert and then there was life with robert (laughs) it was just like as soon as as i met him however i met him i was just like oh yeah partner in crime uh
0: what are other big things about your like first 10 years that you think like we haven't talked about
1: yet um, I mean, the main stuff that I remember from being a small kid is like exploring the neighborhood. You know, like I remember that very, very vividly like, climbing over fences, playing in dirt, doing Indian guides with my dad, like um, eating family dinners around the table. My mom would always cook like an amazing dinner every night. And the four of us would sit down at a dinner, at a dining room table and eat it, which I think is pretty special and pretty rare for the time that I was growing up. Yeah. Um, And... What is Indian Guides? Indian Guides. (laughs) You don't know what Indian Guides is? We didn't
0: have that in Manhattan.
1: (laughs) It's probably not politically correct uh, at all. I haven't thought about this in a long time. I don't know if I was that young. What did you guys have?
0: We had lawyer
1: retreats. (laughs) Okay, Indian guides is a bunch of little white kids from a Methodist church dress up um, in Indian outfits. What else would it be? That's I'm not even kidding. Yeah, you wear little vests made out of rawhide and sense. earn merit badges and stuff. But actually, kind of
0: like Cub Scouts.
1: My it's like Cub Scouts. My dad loves telling this story, and he told it again. I told it again actually over this last Christmas, and my mom didn't remember this, but she laughed and. Basically, I, my dad was taking me to Indian Guides. We now are living on the street with Robert, Langanore Place. We get in the car. We're driving to Indian Guides. As we drive past Robert's house, Robert is playing in the yard. And Robert, it, like, waves to me and says, hi, Alex. And I'm like, hi, Robert. And then I, my dad stops the car and he says, do you want to play with Robert? <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. So I jump out and I go play with Robert. And dad <laughs> goes home and does whatever the fuck he was doing, the, his own time. And my mom is furious at the time, apparently. And the way that my dad tells it is he says, look, I, we're, we're driving down, we're paying, we're paying top dollar here to do this Indian guides thing where we drive out 20 miles at, out, you know, I 40 to go to some undisclosed location with a bunch of other little guys who Alex doesn't know? Or does he want to play with his best friend, Robert, who lives two houses down? Let's see. Can we do the math here? Like, this is... Just his idea was like, obviously, it was a better deal for everybody for me to get to play with Robert. That way he doesn't have to engage. He doesn't have to pay for it. I... Him play with my friend, it was a win win win, yeah. It what it really was was an investment because he was like 20 years from now, these guys are going to be making things together that may be able to earn them money at some point. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he was really thinking. That was the real foresight, yeah. Uh,
0: did you stay in the same middle school, or
1: was middle school when you like went to a new weird school? Yeah, middle school is when <laughs> for middle school, I went to. Sedgefield middle and Sedgefield middle was like descending into the abyss for me in terms of childhood. It was awful. it was got awful. And Robert went to Piedmont open middle, but my middle school experience was pretty bad. It was, um, my brother had gone there. So I went there, but the middle school was not, it was kind of like in decline, I guess it had lost a lot of the, I don't even know how middle schools would have like clout or reputation or whatever, but probably just standards money teachers um so there were a lot of rules it was very strict i was in the ib program the international baccalaureate program which is like at my particular middle school it was very by the book and very strenuous and strict like you have to be the leaders of tomorrow starting at age 12. um it was just a lot of work and, a, and not a whole lot of um creativity I did not enjoy middle school. Though I did like elements of it. I I made some really close friends in middle school.
0: So it sounds like with this middle school, you were just like this rambunctious kid and this school sucked the life out of you.
1: Middle school. Bit. To Sedgefield Middle School's credit, I was also a jackass in middle school. So it was both a hard-ass place to learn where rules were number one and the administration was king. So it was all about the administration... Imposing what I consider to be arbitrary rules like walk in a single file line. Don't talk out of turn Don't throw mud at the buildings. Don't <laughs> don't throw the buildings Not that I was doing that kind of thing, but then I was like also having been given free reign as a little kid starting to become kind of a jerk like to my friends and to people that I liked and didn't like I was just like full of myself and didn't want to be there and didn't see a need to be there and wasted everybody's time I mean, like, the problem also was that I was a good student. I've always been a good student, not a great student. And so I was especially annoying to teachers when I would, like, complete the assignments on time, get good grades, and then disrupt the class by being kind of like the class clown. That was the main thing. One thing that happened in middle school is I got to do the morning announcements for middle school for Sedgefield Middle. And I was kicked off the morning announcements after doing it for like a year. I can't remember why, but I did something. I think I did something on the air that I remember what I did. Can I tell you what I did? Yes, please. (laughs) I haven't thought about this in years. We would go, we had to do the Pledge of Allegiance in the middle of the broadcast. And so I was one of the anchors. And we had like monitors and sound system and everything back there. So we would switch. We were on closed caption TV and we would go to just a stock video of the American flag flying outside of Sedgefield. And in all of the classrooms, the kids would stand up, place their hand over their heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance and sing my country tis of thee. First, they would sing my country tis of thee. Then they would say the Pledge of Allegiance and... In switching to that feed one time, we also had elevator music that we would play before and after the announcements. And I thought it would be hilarious to subtly raise the volume of the elevator music <laughs> <laughs> in concert with the Pledge of Allegiance and then take it back down and then raise it up again and then take it back down. <laughs> that is hilarious. That, and I was fired.
0: <laughs> From a it job was, that you, t- you liked. It was it? like,
1: Yeah. From a job that I really liked. It was like an Aaron Sorkin movie. You know, the librarian came storming in to the open studio and said, You're done! <laughs> you feel bad? Uh, do I feel bad about that? Did you feel bad at the time? Not really. <laughs> Ask me if I do now. Do you feel bad now? Not that? really. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I love that. Yeah. Uh,
0: when did theater come into the picture... All together?
1: Uh, I took a class when I was a really little kid at the Children's Theater of Charlotte with Sidney Horton. Um, he was my instructor. He's a great actor from Charlotte. And this is another fun anecdote. Apparently, I have no memory of this, but apparently it was a week long summer class. And at the end, there was a little performance for all of the parents to come watch. And the parents came and they did, you know, they had everybody dressed up in fucking animal costumes or whatever, bouncing around on stage. And I was sitting in a chair on the side of the stage, just like with my hands folded in my lap. And I didn't do anything for the entire performance. And afterwards, my mom came up and she said, Alex, what happened? Why weren't you in the play? And Sydney said, do you want to tell her, Alex? And I said, I chose not to participate. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. What, What did you object to in the show? I, have no, I just chose not to participate. I don't think I objected to anything. I think I was actually... Ah, this is going to discount everything I previously said, but I think I was a pretty shy kid when it came to actually being on display. I liked to go explore on my own, but I didn't want to be in front of other people doing it. That's interesting. Do you remember when that changed? Um, it was a process of learning to be comfortable on stage, and that was in middle school. I took other classes at Children's Theater and then did ensemble in high school. And it's really just about feeling safe in a working environment with your peers. And then it's not about the performance, it's about the work that you're doing with your peers.
0: So it sounds like ensemble was like, from talking to Robert, that it was like the cool thing to be doing in high school. Like the cool kids did ensemble.
1: I don't think that anybody had any idea what it was it was just cool to us because we were so into it and everybody who was it was very competitive for aspiring actors in the city of charlotte and so if you were a part of it then you really committed to it and that felt cool it felt cool to commit to something instead of like you know just driving around getting drunk whatever we, we didn't really do that stuff because we thought we were a part of something bigger yeah. Which is arguable, looking back on it. But it was definitely very important for us at the time.
0: And was that when you started to, like, actually... Would you say you became passionate about theater at that point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was in large part due to the teachers that I had. I mean, almost exclusively. Jill Blady, who I think Robert mentioned. Jill Blady is, like, responsible for me really being interested in theater altogether.
0: Mark and Mark, Sut-
1: Mark Sutton was our other teacher and he really got me interested in it on a different, deeper level. Um, Yeah, he just, he really, Jill was very nurturing and very supportive and Mark was really pushed us to explore different methodologies, different ways of approaching the work and really kind of like recontextualize it into work, into the idea that it was like something that you could spend a lifetime working at. And did you get a lot of credit at that point for, like, Alex, you're good at this? I did in high school, yeah. In high school, I got pats on the back.
0: (laughs) I remember, uh, I don't remember who said this, but again, when I came to see you in The Rhymers of Eldridge, that was what what it was called in high school, uh, because I was in love with your girlfriend and was coming to see the play. Right. Um, (laughs) I remember somebody saying, like, Alex has the capacity... To hold the audience in the palm of his hand. Like, that was the comment made about you. And I felt like it was really
1: true. Okay, that sounds absurd. But... <laughs>
0: As that character of Scully.
1: Skelly Man, Skelly Man, That's the name of the character. But yeah, uh, I... Don't know who would have said that. It's a pretty...
0: Maybe I just thought it. Maybe I just thought it and now I'm attributing it. To well, it was but, that was a really were, fun thing to do. But you do. were very... But you did... You brought, like, a lot of maturity to that role. Um, Like, you were playing a weird old man.
1: I was a 17-year-old playing a weird old... A weird old man convicted of raping a young girl in this small Midwestern town. So this is, like, a dream for 17-year-old me because Mark Sutton was directing the show. This was the last play that I did as a student of ensemble. And he was, like... I remember him coming up to me before auditions and saying, do you want to, do you want to really work at something this time? Do you, you do you really, do you want a role you can really sink your teeth into? Or do you want to just kind of, I know you're a senior. Do you want to just kind of, I don't know, uh, coast? And I was like, no, I really I really want to work. So he was like, great, you'll be the old fart. <laughs> Rapist in the town. <laughs> you couldn't no, be happier. I, I was, I really loved it. Yeah, I was like... You know this sort of transformation that I haven't um, had the opportunity to attempt since then. That's what's fun about high school is you you're given a pass. You know you can be seventeen and play seventy, and everybody's on board. Another thing that I uh,
0: like spoke to me about you that I remember from right then was because I've always thought like, oh, you're like you're a pretty handsome guy, and I remember. You saying that like no you've been not washing your hair uh, so that you could get it to be dirty to play this role and that no matter like how long you went without washing your hair like you're still your hair still looks pretty good.
1: So let's just add it to the list of attributes we've already come up with. <laughs> uh, let's add vanity as one of them, right? <laughs> so we've already got jackass, uh, center of attention, what did you say conceited or something with your first impression? I I I grew my hair out for this role, and I could. I have very straight hair, and it just wouldn't get as dirty as I'm would. not saying but you. That's were, all I'm saying.
0: This is not a story about you being vain. This is a story about me,
1: like having a tangled mess of <laughs> crow's nest on top of your head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's what this. Story I, is.
0: No, it's it's more about just that. Like I always feel like girls more throw themselves at you <laughs> than they ever have with me. Uh, I think it's like. It's always been a funny thing about being friends with you. is like, you will... Like, if we go out to, like, a bar, like, girls, like, take down their windows and yell things at you <laughs> along the lines of, Sleep with me! That is true. Uh,
1: <laughs> Let it be noted that that is, in fact, 100% they say, accurate.
0: They say, "Take Put that garbage... Dump away.
1: I believe the, verbatim as they say, put that old garbage hump into the dump <laughs> and get in the car.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I'm the garbage hump.
1: You're the garbage hump, yeah. They're like, who's that little muppet you're with? Get him out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Who's your friend? Why does he smell like shit? <laughs> Kick him! And then it usually ends with me kicking you. Because <laughs> you do that to your friends. Hey, you gotta get the ladies what they want. <laughs> Everybody's
0: happy. Yeah. Um, can you tell more about what being an ensemble was like? Uh, the, the social aspect of ensemble?
1: Yeah. Ensemble. So for people who didn't listen to Robert's podcast, the ensemble company was this appendage of the Children's Theater of Charlotte.
0: For the people currently who haven't listened to Robert's podcast is uh, 7.5 billion people, assuming that the hundred people that have listened to it uh, right. are, are, the, are, are the 0.00001% of humanity.
1: Yeah. Ben, we get it. Nobody listens to your podcast. Moving on. (laughs) The ensemble company, it was this pre-professional actor training group. It was basically just a class for high school students, but we met for two hours every Saturday and every Sunday. We worked really hard on these shows. We did two shows a year and uh, we were really enamored with the whole idea of being actors. And so that that was the academic or the artistic component of it. And then This wasn't required, but we were all kind of like friends outside of there, too. So everybody who was in this company would also, you know, hang out on the weekends, after class, before class. we also had class on the weekends. So it made sense to go. We spent a lot of time just hanging out in parking lots, going to diners at two in the morning, things that high school kids do. Um, And and I also met my girlfriend, who you then later met in college through this company So that was huge for me, too. Um, Did you want to know something specifically about the social element? Uh, It just seemed like you guys were...
0: Like it was a really fun group of people to be friends with.
1: It was a really fun group of people to be friends with, but we were definitely weird kids. Not in the traditional sense of being, like, theater nerds, but we would go do like public performance projects. Like we like almost got arrested by the cops for painting ourselves, painting our near naked bodies and going out to do this like (laughs) ritualistic dance around a fire at a YMCA camp area at like midnight. (laughs) To unpack that a little bit, our friend Daniel Garlington was doing um, his senior thesis project on some transcendental artist from the 60s who had done similar performances and he wanted us to recreate the performance that you had to have a practicum so he wrote a 10-page essay on this and then he had us do the performance aspect of it I think he failed I honestly <laughs> think that he got like a D or an F on this project I talked to him afterwards and he was like yeah man, fuck, I don't fucking know. They just fucking uh, I mean, I didn't really write that much in the paper, but they didn't they didn't even like the video. He videotaped us doing this, and then police officers came, they were alerted from the banging of drums and loud music playing.
0: And the filming of child pornography? And the
1: filming of yeah, basically we were all under age under the age of eighteen and like just gathered around this fire. We did that. We also did a Mobius strip. Did that experience mean something to you? The experience was both... <laughs> uh, it was it was important and hilarious at the same time, if that makes sense. I mean, like, so while we are engaged in this ritual for about an hour of, like, banging on drums, walking counterclockwise around a circle, I think a couple people are making out. Uh, Jackie's covered in full white body paint in a bikini. Um... People are, it's just like high schoolers letting loose. And then once the cops get there with tasers and flashlights, so like put your hands in the air, put your hands in the air. Everybody's completely sober except for Daniel, who's like <laughs> stoned out of his mind. We all put our hands in the air. And then it's just like a bunch of high schoolers like lined up in a line and they realize that we're just geeks. Like we, we haven't done anything that constitutes getting booked except trespassing. Yeah. Um, so that it's hilarious I mean looking back on this stuff it's really really funny but again it was about committing to whatever circumstance we were in and so that was what was fun about it at the time you did others of these well the other thing that we did was uh, a Mobius strip which is a concept I don't know if it was pioneered by Improv Everywhere who who's the guy who went to Chapel Hill Charlie Charlie Todd Todd, Charlie Todd Um, but the idea behind that this is something that I did and it was more kind of comedically based this second type of performance art project that we did. And the concept is you go into a public space with a short, basically set of actions or activities. Um, and this is kind of difficult to explain. So there were like 10 of us and we all went to this Caribou Coffee by our house. And we all had different tasks that we had to complete while we were in the Caribou. So I walked in, I ordered a coffee, I went and I sat down with the newspaper and started to read the newspaper. And I was like the through line for the group. The second couple that came in, it was a a boy and a girl. They came in and they went up to order a cup of coffee, but then they got in an argument while they were standing in front of the menu. While they're in an argument, another actor has a cue to come in um, based on some beat in their argument. And he is holding a rose and he's waiting for a girl that never arrives. He takes out his cell phone, gives her a call. When he takes out his cell phone, another person enters. So you've got this really complicated web of basic activity happening. Um, And then once it's done, you repeat it. And you have to do it verbatim, exactly the way that you did it the first time, regardless of whether or not people have caught on to it and regardless if other elements in the scenario have changed. So if a table is moved or something, then you're still going to the spot where the table was. Not that anything as drastic as that happened, but we did it at this caribou for about half an hour. I think we got through eight revolutions of it.
0: And it was a success.
1: It was a huge success. It was like, I think like the fourth or the fifth time in, and this is absurd to me that a grown man would fall for something like this. But this guy behind me, um, there was a part where I spilled my coffee and he said to the person that he was with, he was like, he's about to spill his coffee and then i spilled my coffee and he was like see see wow yeah it's crazy <laughs> the guy was convinced he was like this man was demented living in a- <laughs> i think that this i'm con- i'm convinced that this man was on temporary paid leave from the insane asylum down the street <laughs> and there were hospital orderlies waiting outside it's really happening <laughs> These high school kids are really <laughs> stuck in a loop. <laughs>
0: um, so, in high school, you were also cast in a movie at some point?
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, that was amazing. Yeah, I got this one line part in Talladega Nights, the, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby.
0: I got to do a scene with Will Ferrell.
1: I got to leave class. I got to stand up at like 8.15 in the morning, leave my English class. And when my teacher asked where I was going, I said, I'm going to shoot a movie with Will Ferrell. No, I didn't actually say that. But I did get to leave and go, um, yeah, spend the day filming this scene with Will Ferrell. What was that like? It was incredible. He's a really humble, generous guy who was interested in the three kids that were in this movie, or at least feigning interest in... We were just starstruck and didn't have much to do. Just laughing at him. Yeah, it was great. Uh, And did that inflate your ego in any way? No, I don't. I think that my ego was inflated by ensemble. It certainly didn't hurt it by suggesting that it might not be that difficult to work in major motion pictures. (laughs) When in fact, it's incredibly difficult to do that. Yeah, but it was, uh, it was a great experience.
0: Um, so clearly, high school was cool for you for a lot of reasons. Um, but also, at some point, your parents got divorced, which was a hard thing to have happen.
1: Yeah, my parents getting divorced was like a cold dose of reality. Just like, you're not invincible. Things don't always work out. There's not this underlying optimistic structure to the world. All of those big, like, life things that happen, I feel like I got that pretty squarely in the jaw at 14, because I didn't see it coming at all. And then a few months after that, I had this really traumatic bike accident where I suffered a skull fracture and concussions, brain trauma. Um, And so it was just a really... Freshman year of high school was really difficult. But I think that both of those experiences made me ultimately stronger, and, um, and and were in large part responsible for me being interested in the things that I was interested in.
0: How did that accident make you stronger?
1: Um, I think going through any sort of like physical trauma is, I think, a near death experience, which is what that was. Has a way of making you put things in perspective and. It definitely made me want to try to be a better person, be more conscious in the decisions that I made in my own life, um, all of those basic things that happened.
0: Do you mind telling the basic story of getting in that accident?
1: Yeah. Robert Stevens and I were uh, racing our bikes to go get lunch at Brugger's Bagels, and we took two separate routes, and I went... Um, through this back abandoned parking lot. It was a Sunday afternoon. The businesses were closed. Um, It was a route that we took a lot, but there was kind of an embankment where you had to kind of like bunny hop on your bike to go down this ramp. And I don't remember the accident itself or the three days after it, but I basically went over the handlebars and landed on my head. And Robert, when he got to Brugger's and I wasn't there, circled back around and came and found me. And there was so much blood that we had actually been this is the funny part of the story. This it sounds was, hilarious. This is a week before Halloween, so we had gone to get all this fake blood um, at uh, like Morris Costumes. That's what it was called. We got all this fake blood for Halloween, and he thought that I was like doing a bit that I was joking, which would not have been out of character. No, but it was it a was little the,
0: boy who cried wolfy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Robert said that when the ambulance got there, a volunteer fireman living in the apartments next door heard him screaming, heard Robert screaming, came out, stabilized my neck, my spine, called the ambulance. Ambulance got there. Robert burst out laughing pretty soon after this, talking to me about how how stupid <laughs> I sounded when they asked me basic questions about like, okay, you know, who's the president? And I said, George Bush. And they said, um, what year is it? And I was like, 2003 (laughs) and they were like what day of the week is it and I said
0: "Mm, Wednesday
1: and Robert was like it's Sunday you idiot (laughs) how do you get the simplest one wrong (laughs)
0: but Robert is so callous in this moment (laughs) yeah
1: Robert has always enjoyed laughing at my failure (laughs) at your worst specifically when I get physically injured Robert loves that (laughs) Loves it.
0: He's not a good guy.
1: He's not a very good person. On paper or in practice. <laughs> or in the hearts and minds of those who know him. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you were torn about what college to go to. I remember you, for you, it was kind of like between Kenyan... And UNC?
1: It ended up being between Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, and UNC. But before that, I really thought, without a doubt, that I was going to go to a BFA conservatory program for acting. And then I can't really explain why I didn't want to do that. But ultimately, I just really uh, was turned off by that and wanted to explore other things and go have a liberal arts education. So I didn't even end up applying to any BFA programs. Um, And I kind of, yeah, I kind of fell into Chapel Hill. It seemed like an afterthought when I applied there. And then once it came to making the decision, it just felt right. And it was, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I remember in your first weeks there, you
0: seemed like a little tormented about whether to audition for Chips or not, which your brother had done and had been like, had left a big impression on the group. Like his name was very much still remembered by everybody. Uh, though he hadn't been going to UNC for a little while.
1: Um,
0: What was your conflict about whether to do it or not?
1: So my brother's five years older than me, so he had recently left UNC. So recently that there were still a lot of members in CHIPS that had been in CHIPS with my brother who were younger than him. And so, yeah, my hang-ups were... My brother was also an ensemble in high school. He also went to Chapel Hill. He also did this thing called CHIPS. Um, I had been using my brother as a blueprint for myself for a long time, and I just wanted to make sure that I wanted to do it. I also didn't know that I necessarily wanted to um, devote that much time to comedy in college, because so I hadn't had a lot of experience with it before. And
0: You thought you might want to do more like just straight theater.
1: Just straight chap-ass theater. <laughs> just, because- just straight black leggings and... <laughs>
0: The funny thing to me about you has always been that like I know that that's your inner turmoil is like whether to do drama or comedy but your natural like you you have such a crazy sense of humor to begin with that it's like hard to throw comedy out for
1: you. I do have a crazy sense of humor. I do not consider myself to be a crazy funny person. In terms of the people that I've done comedy with, I, what attracts me is, what attracts me to performance in general is working with people who are better than I am. In comedy, it's like, Robert is, Robert, is, this is not a secret. Robert is the funnier of the two of us. Robert is a really funny guy, naturally. He's one of the funniest people that I, to me personally, he's the funniest person. And I would
0: ever. say you're very differently funny.
1: Right um
0: so not that one is funnier than the other
1: sure yeah i know you would say that you're a very good friend (laughs) so so yeah so the conflict of comedy versus drama is really there's no conflict now now the con now there's no conflict it's just i want to work whatever i can do i will do but at the time when i was trying to decide between what to spend time getting better at i thought what what really interests me about all of it is investigating what it means to be a human, as sappy and weird as that sounds. I like um, what happens when you listen to somebody else and you're able to capture that, whether it's on stage or on screen. I really like that. So that truthfulness can come through in comedy or drama. I just thought that I had a better tool set for drama starting out than I did for comedy. And I still a lot of times feel like I'm playing catch up with comedy. I can hold my own in a scene, but there are people with like a preternatural ability to just be funny with everything that they do.
0: But you did end up doing Chips. Yes. And what was that like for you?
1: It was everything for me. It was the best part of college. It was the same, it occupied the same space that Ensemble had in high school, except now it was college. And it was a lot more fun because the people were, Fun and funny, and the ideas were ideas that we were generating. So it was a f- really it was very creative atmosphere to actually be writing and performing and improvising your own material instead of interpreting someone else's.
0: And how were you feeling about the drama stuff?
1: I was still doing it, but I was, it,
0: but it was. Do you would you just say that Carolina wasn't like the best school to go to for all
1: that stuff? You know, I honestly don't know if it. I yeah, I would say. It's not the best school, but I don't think that I would have enjoyed being at like Yale or Tisch or, you know, Juilliard or any of those places either. I think that I was becoming less and less interested in theater in general, um, as just kind of, uh, and it's relevance to the world in the new millennium. You were questioning that a lot? Absolutely. Yeah. And I was also becoming more interested in academics and different things that I was studying in class. And And comedy is kind of like a, you know, a way to bring it all together. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was more interested in television and film at this point. I was more interested in terms of performance. The most fun shows to go to were always the chip shows. People who went to go see lab theater shows, like, were checking their phones at intermission, sometimes leaving. (laughs) So what did did your dream shift to being like? I wouldn't say that my dream has ever really shifted. I think that I've never really decided what I truly want to do. I'm still wrestling with that. Well,
0: Alex, we're running out of time, darling.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, I just... I was able to invest in chips because it was was such a no-brainer. It was so much fun. I was learning so much, and everybody was better than me. And it was just an actor's dream to be able to do that every day, week. Yeah. Um,
0: so let's talk about uh, this dumb thing about me being in love with your girlfriend and uh, what ended up happening. I'll, should you want me to talk first or do you want to talk first? Sure,
1: go for it. I don't f- think we need to spend that much time on this. We'll just spend, a, sec- we'll just it- spend a, se- a second on it. Go for it.
0: Uh, and this all comes from the perspective of today. Uh, I still love her. I
1: still love with her. Oh you, my god, I still you love, love
0: her. her. Really?
1: No. <laughs> Cut. But
0: I love her.
1: Cut that. Definitely. This is it. Because we, no, we've, we've got a current love who might listen to this. So this is all from... This story comes from the
0: perspective that I am in a relationship. <laughs> I'm about to marry a woman after dating her for eight years. You're dating a beautiful girl by the name of
1: Lillian Olive. Only beautiful, though. She's not also talented. I didn't smart. say mine
0: was talented.
1: <laughs> okay, you're right. We're both, we're both, Lillian is everything. We Lillian's are amazing. We're both dating beautiful and nothing else women right now.
0: <laughs> we're dating amazing, talented, beautiful, ten, like on a scale of one to ten, they're tens.
1: There we go. They're, they're both great people.
0: But anyway, so I had feelings for this girl you were dating, Jackie. Uh, And then I came and I met you, and then you came to UNC, and then it ended up just being that I was conflicted. Because in my head before you had come to UNC, I felt like uh, the likelihood was that you weren't going to end up there, and then that you would just end up being a high school... Boyfriend that this girl had been dating, and then you would be out of the picture. And then, you know, who knows even if, like, I could have ever gotten her to look at me romantically, but, like, that's where my, like, that was what I was thinking. (laughs) Right. And then, and then, but then we started being friends at UNC, and things became more complicated, and I feel like I uh, backed off of her. Uh, I. Like, yeah, I told her, but, but I think I, I don't know. I, t- I think things came to a head when I told her that we, I needed to back off being friends with her for a little while because I had a crush on her and I wanted to, like, be respectful to you. And <laughs> then that blew up into uh, us having a little bit of a confrontation uh, where, where you were pretty much in the
1: right. I'm glad you see it that way. Yeah, more or less. Do I come up as the bad guy in that story? No, not at all. I don't think there is a bad guy. It's so under the bridge and in the past now that I'm not losing sleep over anybody's involvement.
0: But it is a fun story.
1: It's fun to think that there was a time when we were in love with the same woman, I guess. Though I don't think it's... That uncommon.
0: And also, you were in love with her from, uh, like, knowing her and, uh, like, actual actual experience with her. And I was in love with her from being a crazy person with some experience knowing her as a friend. And then a lot of time building her up in my brain in sort of a Great Gatsby kind of way.
1: I would not. I would say that's incorrect. You guys were pretty inseparable at college.
0: That might be true. Then I feel bad.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty standard case of I'm in a committed relationship. You are a friend who's the unrequited lover pursuing girl (laughs) in the relationship. Uh,
0: But I do think it is a funny way for... um,
1: It was very funny, I will give you that. The whole thing... The whole ordeal was a bucket of laughs. And when it was all said and done, I just thought, we have got to revisit this sometime. I wish to gosh damn that somebody got it on tape. Um,
0: In the end... How much do you remember college positively? I feel like you had some periods of like kind of feeling a little bit like morose in college.
1: Yeah, I think that any of those feelings I've carried with me before and after college, a general anxiety about my place in all of this and how do I succeed and how do I make money and how do I do all these things? I was worried about that in college because I realized halfway through college that I was a comparative literature major and that there was no paycheck waiting for me at the end. And, but in my memory, I mean, college, I have nothing but fond memories. It was amazing. If I could give myself any advice retroactively, it would be to not worry about the things I was worrying about. Because it didn't get me anywhere in the end. I stayed at a comparative literature major. Can you major. give yourself that advice now? Yeah, I, I am giving myself that advice. But it's hard to take. It's hard to take because I need. To make a living now. And the clock is ticking. So right after college,
0: you studied abroad for a little while, or
1: what would after all that? After college, I worked in Chapel Hill for the Office of Sustainability and at Top of the Hill Brewery for about four and a half months. And I saved the money that I could and I bought a one-way ticket to Paris where I met up with my friend Eloise, and she helped me get on a train in the south of France um, in this city called Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Poin. I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sounds pretty good. I went to go hike this trail across Spain called the Camino de Santiago, and I walked for five weeks across Spain from southern France to Portugal. And then I went to Barcelona, after traveling with my dad for about 10 days, and I found a roommate on Craigslist, and I started tutoring English, and then I worked in a post-production house with an Uruguayan friend who I made in the city, and I did some traveling around Western Europe. I went to visit my family in England, my extended family, and then I went to Morocco, With some friends, Eloise being one of them, Brie Duggan being the other one. And then I went and worked in Costa Rica for a couple months, leading these kids on these service adventure trips. And then I came back to the U.S. So it had been a year that I took. It was basically a gap year. That was probably too much detail.
0: But all no, it wasn't. All those things feel like they're what kind of feeds your soul uh, in a way that a lot of other stuff doesn't.
1: Yeah, it was a really difficult year in a lot of the same ways that college was difficult. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I was improvising without a structure. So I didn't go over there to teach English with a program. I wanted to just go try to teach English myself so that I could make my own vacation and breaks and stuff. Um, And it was really hard. And then, yeah, I do love travel. I love traveling and I love... um, I loved the experience of learning another language, which I had also worked at in college. Study abroad was something we didn't touch on. I studied abroad in Chile and traveled around Latin America. But um, yeah, I really like exploring in general. That does feed my soul. I like learning new things, learning things from other people.
0: And you like slept with a lot of women.
1: I slept with an overwhelming amount of women. So I lost all of my private parts in the process through various sores and rots Um, no matter how many poultices I made with my mortar and pestle I could not keep the disease at bay
0: I couldn't do it you can't keep the disease at bay I can't keep the diseases off my groin the disease is coming and now it's here
1: no I didn't sleep with any women I don't do that.
0: (laughs) So after that year was over, you came back to Charlotte and worked for the TV show Homeland. That's what you did?
1: I did. My intention was to move to L.A. I had visited L.A. a year and a half earlier and decided that I did not want to move here. But after... Did not want to move to L.A. Did not want to move to L.A. I remember, I think you quoted... Can you believe I, it? I heard you, I heard like, I think somebody
0: told me that you like looked over LA from uh, the Griffith Park Observatory and you just like took it all and you were like, this is a cesspool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I probably did. So what changed your mind? Um, I ran out of other options and I was like, I really want to give acting a shot and all my friends are in LA and it looks like they're having a good time. I was really lacking community, and I, I don't know, something just clicked for me, and I thought, if it doesn't work out, I can leave. Sounded fun to be
0: near Robert, and, and me, you. Yeah. and a stone's throw away from Reed Berger Coster.
1: Yeah, and Madeline, and C.C. Garcia, and C.C. Pierce, and all of these people. Everybody who went to Chapel Hill.
0: So you moved out here, in January twenty twelve, uh, pretty quickly we launched into working on projects together. Did uh, started doing this show called The State of Us, um, which was like a new satire show, and just trying to think of fun projects to do together. Um, though none of them have been like the thing that has put either of us on the map yet.
1: They have all been very fun though.
0: They've all been fantastic
1: and totally worthwhile. That's how I feel. Yeah.
0: Um, I and there's been a. F- I remember we we did a pilot recently called All of the Above um, that we like wrote together and then we shot it over the course of a weekend, and while that also wasn't like th- a ticket <laughs> to fame and fortune, I remember while we were shooting it feeling like this is exactly what I want to be doing.
1: Yeah, that was really cool too. That was more of an exercise in. Writing something a little bit longer for me personally, because you've written a lot of stuff, but I haven't written that many things. Um, This was the longest thing I'd ever written, and I wrote it with you. I think it was like 16 pages or something. Yeah. And then it was just cool to be able to pull together the different production elements and get something done quickly. It wasn't great, but it was a really great experience. Yeah. And everybody showed up. And was performing
0: well on set. Like, Nick Danich was a great director.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Nick was fantastic. And Madeline actually helped out a lot. Madeline assisted with the script also. Um, and, yeah, we had some great friends come and help out as extras. It was just a good experience. This, that, that felt more like an exercise. The state of us felt more like a product once we got rolling with it that I was pretty confident putting out in the world. Um but they've both been really good for different reasons. So what have been the hardest
0: parts about living in LA and what are your favorite parts?
1: So the hardest part of living in LA, once you get past the fact that it's a giant seething cesspool of avarice, greed and misfortune.
0: Right. After that.
1: Right. Um, No, even though I I am tongue in cheek about that, there are some, existential problems I have with the layout of the city that I think make it difficult to live in. It's a big, sprawling, concrete jungle. Um, And there's some really great parts about that because we can go hiking a lot, as I do. Um, It's sunny all the time. That's great. Another good part of it. Everybody knows all this already. The, The hard parts about living here are you can feel isolated. You can feel disconnected from anything outside of the entertainment industry.
0: It feels like a very big deal that Ted two is coming out.
1: It feels like a big deal that Ted two is coming out only because it's on every billboard, <laughs> every half block and I could care less about Ted two. Yeah. My friends back home have no idea when these films are coming out and why should they? The only reason we do is because they are paraded in front of our faces Ad infinitum. So.
0: And it's everybody's dream here.
1: It's irritating. Everybody is somehow connected to
0: Everybody it. would literally kill for a role in Ted 2.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. So that sucks. <laughs> I mean, there's some inherent problems about living. There's some. Yeah, there are some inherent difficulties about living in a city in general. A large American city. That are compounded in L.A in terms of its layout, but then you have the added layer of the entertainment industry. Then you have the added layer of housing being very expensive. And it's also very far away from everything that's happening across the country on the East Coast. So those are some difficult elements. On a macro level, on a personal level, LA is difficult for me because I feel like there's a lot of work that happens. I feel like I'm constantly working to find work. The biggest work that there is, is getting the work. And then once you get the work, it's so few and far between that you almost don't know what to do anymore. Or let's use an audition as an example. It's so hard to get an audition that once you do get the audition, the fear of blowing the audition means that you blow the audition. Or not even blow it, but just that it was never that big of a deal in the first place. Yeah. And there were 500 other people who were going for it.
0: That doesn't sound fun.
1: So it's kind of like being in Vegas and thinking that you're really going to win. And you've never met anybody from the house. (laughs) Truman?
0: And and we kind of know, looking around Vegas, that a lot of these
1: people are... There's nothing more ironic to me than the four of us, me, you, Reed, Berger, and Robert, piling into a car, driving to Vegas, spending a debauched 48 hours laughing at the idiots in Vegas, and then driving back to Los Angeles. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) That is hilarious. Yeah. But I really have a good
0: feeling, Alex. I feel like if I can just get a couple more spins... Uh, somebody's going to buy one of my scripts or something like that.
1: Your unfailing optimism is your best quality, Ben. Can and I... And I mean that sincerely. Can I have
0: some more quarters?
1: Here you go. Go and spend it all in one place. You can either buy a meal with this. I spent it. Okay. There you go. Don't come asking for more. Next time buried in the ground and grow a money tree, Ben, like the rest of us. <laughs>
0: So what would be your biggest hope for where you'd be in five years from now?
1: Five years from now, if I'm still living in LA, if I'm still trying to be a performer writer, I would love to be on a non-cable prestige television show. That would be a dream. I'd love to be on like an HBO or Showtime show. Um, if I were doing kind of like straight dramatic work, if I were doing comedic work that, that would also be equally as great. SNL would not be a bad place to land. I don't think that those are realistic dreams, but those are what I would like. Yeah.
0: Um, what do you think the odds are that you will
1: remain in LA? 50, 50. I think it all depends on what happens in the next couple of years. Making money is really important to me, not making a lot of money, but making enough money to survive. And I've had a hard time doing that since I've been here. And so, and I also feel like I'm capable of being an asset to some sort of community or cause um, bigger than selling people shit or, which is also funny because I'm trying to be an actor, uh, which is just selling people shit. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could see myself doing a lot of different things in five years.
0: Do you kind of hope the one that happens? Uh, Yeah, absolutely, since
1: that's what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm uncommitted to it. I'm just cautiously optimistic about it. Yes. Because I've been here for three years now, which in the scheme of things is not a long time. But I have not made significant inroads in that time.
0: What are the... But there have been some cool things that have happened to you. Absolutely. You did a... Um, <laughs> you got to dress up as that chicken on the side of uh, Sunset Boulevard.
1: I did that. <laughs> I was sodomized with a pole by a woman wearing all pink. You, um, uh, I was paraded around <laughs> on a leash
0: you got outside to, of the medical really marijuana
1: cool... dispensaries in Bell <laughs> Boulevard.
0: You got to do some um, great extra work. Uh, for Grey's Anatomy. It's true. Uh, you can see your hand at
1: some point. Yeah. Um, I was held underwater against my will off the Santa Monica Pier by a homeless man brandishing a uh, banana peppered with holes.
0: Right. So things. Didn't... Yeah. Uh, you you got to do a role on the show Turn. I did um,
1: have a role. AMC. If you can call a couple lines a roll. No, I did. I you had, have to be able I to. did. I did. I've had. I have had. Some big successes, relatively, uh, since I've been in L.A. I have been on a TV show. Um, I've done The State of Us with you guys, which I would argue is probably the biggest success. Because we had traction and we stuck with something. Yes. Um, I have met some incredible people through classes that I've been in. I've gone through the UCB classes.
0: You did um, a short film directed by somebody who worked on Homeland?
1: I did, I did another short film that went to Cannes, which was really cool. Um, So yeah, done some cool things. The nature of the beast is that these cool things happen, they're few and far between. So you do something and then six months later you do something else. Um, And that's okay, I mean that's been okay for right now. It's just when you start to think about how do I continue to pay my rent Etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it gets kind of overwhelming. Um, and we're about to do a new
0: project um, where we're just gonna try to film you and Robert uh, basically doing bits at a dinner table, like in a restaurant. Uh, and I'm gonna play the waiter. This is true. Um, but we're, we're trying something new.
1: I'm really excited about that project. I'm
0: excited about it too. I'm glad that we're just keeping on going.
1: You guys are doing really well, I should also add. I mean, you and Madeline are like a dream team who are killing it out here, I would say. You've got a lot of things in development at any given time, and it's not because you've been any luckier, it's because you have a really great work ethic, and you're very tenacious. So, I I should say that, like, my misgivings about pursuing a career as an actor, a lot of it has to do with impatience. I'm a naturally impatient person and there probably is an element of ego too, of like, I'm better than, you know, waiting tables while I pursue my dream. But there's also the question of, is this my dream? What, what I really admire about you guys and, and some other people out here is that um, you're very committed and certain that it's what you want to do. And you are like kicking ass to get there. I think that, uh, thank you, first of all. Yeah. Uh,
0: I feel like we, we both do a good job doing the right things. Uh, I think that I just uh, sometimes feel like a little bit more faithful that it will work out as it happens. Because, like, if I look at exactly where I was when I'd been in LA for three years, uh, that was September of 2012, and like things were objectively. Not going well for me. Like, I was working for as a production assistant for a reality TV show at Intervention. That's
1: amazing!
0: (laughs) I had auditioned to get on UCB teams seven times and been rejected every time. Yeah. Uh, I had not had a single like win yet. We were, I think the best thing going for me was that we were, we had like optimism about the state of us, but As of, you know, September 2012, we were just going into the second season. Uh, But uh, I did feel this dumb optimism that, like, a win was coming. And it was. And it it was. So, and 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 you know, I think that you feel, like, thankful to have this about me, that, like, I'm always confident that a win is coming for you. Or, right. And that more big wins are. Well, I'm or, not, and, that, and that if you just kept doing what you're doing, things would work out really well for you.
1: I think things will work out really well for me. Cool. I mean, that's... I am optimistic about that. I just don't know that it's necessarily going to be in the way that I intended it to be. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be as an actor uh, or in L.A. or whatever. And I'm open to the possibility of something else working out for me. Because... I think that's how life works a lot of times. I think that's I'm, smart. I'm trying to be wise as a 27-year-old. Yeah. And it's difficult, but... You sound wise. I'm working within my limits, basically. I'm, tr- I'm doing the best I can with what I have. Yeah.
0: I feel similarly. Like, I'm, I know that exactly what I want, which was, like, I was targeting being a TV, a writer on TV shows. Like, that may still not happen. Uh, and I'm, like, ready for that. But I just hope... But I'm not going for anything that's not... Like, I think that will happen. Thank you. But it may not. Uh, and if it's not that, I'd be very happy being a children's book writer. And if that doesn't happen, hopefully there's a third thing.
1: Yeah, I've got similarly realistic backup plans. Um, <laughs> if it doesn't work out as an actor, I'm thinking probably a Martian astronaut. That's not a U.S. astronaut, but that's an astronaut who works for Martians. Um <laughs> I'd also like to create a small city um, on an uninhabited island that hasn't yet been discovered. Uh, it's a little passion project of mine. <laughs> and just generally working <laughs> door-to-door salesman jobs. That's probably the, the last one. So, yeah. I mean, children's book writer, founding a small city on an undiscovered island. Potato, potato. Come say, saw.
0: Something good is going to happen for us.
1: Yeah. We've got this unlock.
0: And if we, things really work out, we'll be acting in films at the same time as we're living in that city you make.
1: And what a dream that would be. <laughs> to be looking at these big eyes on the silver screen. <laughs> from the city you made? <laughs> ben, if there's one wish that I have for the both of us, it's that five years from now, We are sitting in a great glass elevator at the top of a building that I built with my hands, sipping cocktails and looking out over the vast expanse of metal and fog that is...
0: Mars?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was losing it there. I didn't know how to wrap that one up.
0: (laughs) Well, Alex, I selfishly hope that you're out here for a while more. Because um, I really like having you here. It's been a really amazing thing. To, It's a dream that kind of, I feel like, came true for me. Because I remember sitting in Cosmic Cantina with you and talking about, like, how amazing would it be to have a creative community that, like, extended past college and be part of that community together. And it kind of, at this point, couldn't have happened more. Uh, and I just feel really excited about that.
1: It is really incredible, and I am so grateful to you also, man. Thanks for having me.
0: I love you a lot. Love you too.
1: Um. Yeah, the best part of LA is the people that we're doing it with.
0: And the buildings will build. I hope it's worth So, thank you for listening to my interview with Alex Whittington. If you want to see a bunch of cool stuff featuring Alex, you can find it on his website at www.alexwhittington.com. Again, I'd really appreciate it if you'd consider subscribing to the show or rating us on iTunes. And if you have any questions about anything that happened in the Alex Whittington episode or anything at all, you can always email me at onthecusppod at gmail.com. Special thanks to Casey Trela and Hiho Silvero for all the music in this episode, to my sound editor Joe Burge, and to my producer CeCe Pierce. This has been On the Cusp! Be-de-dee, 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 be-de-dee. That's your outro music.